Hello. One of my favourite cartoons is a panorama of people walking down Fifth Avenue in New York like a perfectly normal day. In the background is the Empire State Building on which is perched a rabbit holding a terrified woman and grasping at low-flying aircraft. One apparently unconcerned commuter is saying to another, I guess if it was a gorilla, we would take it seriously. Why is it that equally objectively worrying things sometimes look like gorillas and sometimes like rabbits? Why, for example, do we as a country that likes still to see itself as among the best in the world seem almost blasé about our accelerating drift into being a middle-income country with middle-income public services to match? If I'd said 20 years ago that we'd now be on the verge of being poorer up ahead than some Eastern European countries, wouldn't that have seemed a nightmare that we should do anything to avoid? But we apparently had other nightmares to worry about, like becoming part of a European superstate. A wonderful new book, definitely, I think one of the most important we've ever discussed on Bridges to the Future, argues that what we are frightened of is critical to what is possible and impossible in politics. Our political nightmares have changed in the past, and they can, and arguably must change, again. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to welcome Phil Tinline, author of The Death of Consensus, 100 Years of British Political Nightmares. It's a a masterful mix of history, biography, political economy. I couldn't put it down and then I couldn't wait to tell other people about it. Indeed, Phil, I'm on my third copy of the book. I gave the first one to my friend Ben Page, who's the global head of Ipsos Mori, and I gave the second one to a very senior member of Keir Starmer's office. That's how much I love your book. So that's three sets of royalties I've given you. Goodness me, thank you very much. That's very kind indeed. (laughs) So, Phil, there's so much to get into, but we always start these podcasts with a kind of simple question, like we do when we're interviewing someone for a job, the the question to put you at your ease. And so I'll start with that. So tell me, Phil, what led you to want to write the book? Well, it's a bunch of different things. I got interested a long time ago, partly through Andy Beckett's writing, early writing, a book called Pinochet and Piccadilly. I got interested in the idea of how we have imagined in the past that British democracy might be about to die. And I had a whole project I worked up on that many years ago, which didn't get anywhere. And I put it aside. But then that started to coincide as British politics started to become more interesting, as in the Chinese proverb, in the mid 2010s, with thinking about this idea of consensus. So the thought in the title, consensus, the thought in the subtitle, nightmares, kind of came from two different places, but clicked together in my head round about, I think, 2015, when it looked like we might be heading into a two election year. We didn't, in fact. But that was the point at which I could sort of see that the nightmares that hadn't happened weren't just interesting stories that in the end petered out, which was a slightly dissatisfying issue with the original idea, but actually the political fear, political nightmares, as you said in your intro, 
set the bounds of the politically possible and that we seem to be at a point in the middle of that decade where that was beginning to creak and shift and that's really where I started to start mining that and and first of all looking at the 70s but I mean originally for this book the 30s was just going to be an introductory chapter giving you the early lives of Michael Foote and Barbara Castle and so on but actually the more I looked at what they were doing and these extraordinary elements of their lives the more I wanted to write about it and so I persuaded my publishers to change it and make it 30s 70s now in equal measure. Yeah, I will look at each of those periods. But let, let's just stick to this kind of core thesis, because you say in the book, you don't want to exaggerate the idea of consensus. You don't want to suggest that there's ever really been a time when everybody agrees about everything, that we use the notion of consensus, even in the period we most often refer to, I guess, the kind of Butzka-like period, that we tend to slightly exaggerate the degree to which all parts of the establishment agree something. So that's kind of you use the word consensus, but actually the thing that's innovative in your book is this idea that the consensus is held together not really by a shared vision, which is what I think we tend to think, but is actually held together by a shared nightmare, what it is that that we fear. I'm really interested, when did that coalesce in your mind, that idea? Well, I think it's looking at the 1970s, as I say, and and I spent a lot of time thinking about 1974 and why it is that British politics got itself into this extraordinary position where, you know, people, serious people were talking about how we might have to have some sort of authoritarian interlude that, you know, we might even see intervention by the army or private armies. Why would we get to that point? And I eventually realised that it all connected back to what had happened two years earlier, where Edward Heath had been trying to reform the economy and how we did things in various ways, but hit this point where unemployment hit a million. And I actually remember this, seeing this in a textbook at school in the 1980s and seeing this headline from the Daily Mirror, one million, the shameful figure. And this is in the 1980s when one million unemployed would be a nice problem to have. And being very struck by the the nightmarishness of that at that point. And that, that sort of stuck with me. And then, as I say, when I was thinking about 1974, I realised that the unthinkability of unemployment in 1972 put such a hard limit on what people were able to do that they actually began to think about suspending democracy, about using force to break picket lines, because that seemed less unthinkable than allowing unemployment to climb, which of course, as we eventually saw, was a much more effective and democratic way of, for good or ill, weakening the power of the trade union. So it was really there. And then I started to sort of think about that paradigm, you know, in the 1930s, and it works in a different way. I'm in no way saying, obviously, that history works in a neat little loop. But you can see similar sort of patterns around 1931 and through to 1940. And also, of course, trying to make sense of of what was going on in British politics over the last decade, and particularly after the Brexit vote, but watching the sort of stasis that broke out in Parliament after Theresa May lost her majority, that that really started to kind of suggest to me that there was a sort of set of patterns, which did again have an echo of the 70s, and that what you were seeing was, just as in the 70s, a series of failed attempts to try to change how things were working through, you know, in place of strife, then Heath's efforts with an industrial relations court, and then a sort of step backwards to the sort of social contract. And finally, after the, only after the winter of discontent, you get to Thatcher. I started to see around about 2017 that there were, you could see a similar pattern happening after the financial crash. That you could see, you know, Philip Blonde and Morris Glassman and all these people trying to persuade political leaders to to break with old nightmares of on which the sort of the the power of finance crudely had been based for a long time, and that that has petered out. People were too wary of it. But that then after Brexit, you suddenly had this moment with Nick Timothy and Theresa May, where it looked like it might 
break through. And, and I, I've started working on that at that point. And then they lost the election while I was first looking at it. So again, it seemed that there was a, a very strong resistance, which seemed not just to be a sort of mathematical calculation of what was best, but a visceral sense that we cannot allow certain things to happen. We cannot allow, you know, a, a return of a strong state. We cannot allow any risk of inflation. We must get the deficit down. That those things had a sort of a similar quality to the visceral fear of unemployment in the 1970s. And then thinking, of course, about what happened to that fear and its supersession by a fear of inflation and a fear of mass picketing, eventually, as I say, by the winter of discontent, that you could start to see the possibility of that happening here. And you know, I, I pitched the book in July 2019 and sort of watched some of that unfold through to the 2019 election. And, you know, and perhaps we'll get on to talk about mm-hmm. what's happened since as well. So in a way, you know, the book can be understood as the notion of competing ideas of what it is we should be fearful of, which generally align reasonably with a kind of right-left divide, that there is a left view of what we should be fearful of and a right view of what we should be fearful of. And and we can understand the, the last hundred years in terms of which of those views has become at least for a while, kind of hegemonic or the basis of a establishment consensus such as it is. And in some ways, that is most stark in the 30s, isn't it? Because that kind of choice between economic orthodoxy, a fear of the debauching of the pound, the collapse of the credibility of the British economy in the eyes of the global market versus a view that what we should be fearful of is social division and mass unemployment. I mean, that's very much explicit, really, in the political discourse, and particularly, of course, in what happens to the the split in the Labour Party. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, in some ways, what we've been living through over the last 14 years has more parallels to the 70s, in some ways more to the 30s. And I think one way that that there is a clearer parallel with the 30s is that while all this stuff is churning around in the the minds of of politicians and writers and and in their sort of debates, you do have this fairly hegemonic government, you know, created in 1931, which lasts right through to the massive crisis, you know, the even greater crisis of May 1940 finally destroys it. But no, I mean, you, you can definitely see, you know, the way that that fear shapes the the government that takes power in 1931. But there is this huge irony, which is that it's created to, you know, make the, the hard but necessary cuts to unemployment benefit in order to convince foreign financiers to give the British government the loans it needs to stave off a deficit and protect the value of the pound and maintain the gold standard. Because if the gold standard goes, starvation and ruin will follow, the Labour Chancellor Philip Snowden thinks. But of course, actually, what happens is that the cuts themselves cause what appears to be, isn't really, but appears to be a sort of mutiny in the Navy. And within weeks of the coalition government have been founded and the the great trauma that haunts the Labour Party for decades, ending the 29-1931 government. Once you have that coalition in place, actually, Britain comes off the gold standard very quickly. And you have this extraordinary moment where we come off the gold standard and starvation and ruin do not follow. We don't have a German-style hyperinflation like in 1923, which had been much discussed in the Commons by several MPs who'd seen it happen. Actually, what happens is that interest rates go down a bit, housing becomes cheaper, building houses becomes cheaper, and actually the, the economy revives a little. If you're unemployed, it doesn't do you that much good if you're in the in the real black spots of unemployment. But if you've got a job, actually, your life improves. So embedded within that is this sort of striking object lesson in what happens when you are actually forced to confront a nightmare and it's not as bad as you think. 
But as you say, even so, you know, the remaining bits of the orthodoxy, I mean, free trade goes the following year, but the, the absolute core of the orthodoxy that we must not have huge deficits, we must not raise taxes too high, that is absolutely granite until you have this even more seismic nightmare, this absolutely horrendous threat towards the end of the 30s of Nazi invasion. And, you know, that stirs up yet another nightmare, the nightmare left over from the First World War, that, you know, another world war, God forbid, a second world war will bring down literally the death of civilization, a popular phrase for what's likely to happen. So it takes an enormous amount of fear, the fear of Nazi invasion, both to override the fear of catastrophic world war and to override the fear of the deficits that will ensue if we try to pay for that war. So now the 30s is a, is a very stark example of quite how much it takes to override an orthodoxy. One of the things I want to explore in a, in, a, in a few moments is the discontinuities between the period we now live in and the way politics works in the way they did in the past. But I just want to explore one of those now, which is that it, your book is very rich on the biographies of some of the critical characters that you, you talk about. And I think that's because you really want us to understand the milieu within which they were living, their experiences, what, what shaped their own sense of what it was we should be fearful of, that, that the conservative politicians in the post-war period had known what it was like to see people suffering from mass unemployment. And they really, you know, they had a visceral desire to avoid that, whatever their kind of ideological, other ideological predispositions. But I guess that, I guess the point for is this, you treat those politicians with respect in the sense that their fears are sincere for them. I think this is something which is different now. I think that politicians now talk about fears as rhetorical devices, as bits of kind of political narrative. Do you think that's right? I mean, we'll talk about the present in a, in a moment, but but you, you're not arguing, are you, that nightmares, these nightmares are, are political devices in order to mobilise people to vote? You know, the politicians you talk about genuinely have a very strong, genuine fear of you know, for example, the collapse of the British economy or mass unemployment, or that we're going to be sucked into a kind of grey corporatist state. Yeah, I think that's I think that's broadly right. I think we should probably be careful of seeing them as too sort of fully sincere in today's politicians as too utterly cynical, because I think it's always a mix. And I'm sure you're not suggesting any sort of stark, stark contrast. But so Harold Wilson, for example, is usually seen as this utterly cynical, manipulative sort of snake of a man, weasel. But, you know, you look at what he says in that speech that I begin the book with in 1971, where he says, if a man is unemployed, he's not 6% unemployed, seasonally adjusted. For him and for his anxious family, he is 100% unemployed. Now, you know, Wilson, age 14, sees his father lose his job and not get it back, not get a job back for 18 months. You know, that's an absolutely formative experience for him. So in a way, even if he was then using that in a politically cynical way, and some people would say the reason that unemployment was heading for a million in 1972 was Wilson's own Chancellor Roy Jenkins' deflationary policies at the end of the Labour government in 1969. But even so, it's very hard to see that as purely cynical. He may have known what to do with that genuine fear, but no, I think it was absolutely a genuine fear. And I think in terms of where we are today, by contrast with that, I think 
perhaps because we've been through a pattern of the nature that I describe in the book, you know, I would say, you know, now a sort of third time, I do think, and, you know, politics has become more canny anyway, uh, and moves faster and tries to second guess things more, like I think we all do. I think there has grown a bit more of a sense that there is this sort of pattern, and that actually, if you kind of sing the songs that that pattern suggests, and, you know, arguably, we've seen that, you know, with Boris Johnson's rhetoric over the last few years, that, you know, you can get quite a long way just by sort of striking the notes and, as I say, singing the songs. And that, that there was something perhaps, as you say, a little bit more straightforward about the way it was done in the past, simply because, you know, we were a much younger mass democracy. I think we very easily forget we've only really been a mass democracy, you know, since 1918 or arguably 1928. And, and they were still finding the, finding the patterns. So one of the questions raised by books like this, although very few are as captivating as yours, is that they kind of suggest an underlying pattern. And David Runtzman said, I'm sure he's not the only person to have said it, that you can only understand history if you understand all history is simultaneously determined and contingent. And so I'm interested in the sense of contingency here. And let, let's take a specific example. You know, had James Callaghan called an election in the autumn of 1978, before the winter of discontent. How different would things have been? Or is your sense that, because of course what was happening in Britain was happening not everywhere by any means, it was happening in America as well, in terms of the kind of neoliberal shift. So I'm interested in your sense when you look at this broad sweep of how different things could have been if relatively small things had gone other ways. Well, I mean, obviously this is all counterfactual, but I, I have a fairly strong sense from having sort of immersed myself in this for a long time that at the party political level, at the electoral level, of course, all is contingency. You know, the whole thing is made up of lots and lots of micro contingencies. People now like to calculate just how few votes in what particular constituencies swung an election. So no, of course, there's there's plenty of contingency. But of course, at the same time, underneath, there are forces which are not as easily sort of swayed by, you know, the mathematical happenstance of how millions of people happen to place their crosses on a particular day. So if you take the example you talk about, let's just work that through. And I'll try and give you my scenario for what would have happened. Let's say Callaghan calls the election, as people expected him to, at the TUC in late 1978, and he duly wins. And having struggled along with a majority of basically zero, you know, maybe he even wins the vagaries of, of the sophology, maybe he wins a majority of 15 or 16. All of the basic forces that exploded through the winter of discontent and Thatcher's election victory the following year would still have been there. You would still have had the strain between the two parts of the sort of social contract, you know, which was already basically coming to an end by that point anyway. You know, the Labour Party desperately trying to tackle inflation. Dennis Healy, nobody's conservative, desperately trying to bring inflation down. And the trade unions, who, as Jack Jones and Hugh Scanlon retired, were getting less and less interested, not because of any cynicism on the part of their successors, but because of what their millions of members insisted on. You know, that's why Moss Evans was elected to replace Jack Jones, on the principle that he was not going to just stick to the social contract or, you know, limits on pay come what may. He was there to represent his members. And so that basic split in the social contract, which is always, you know, a fairly last ditch operation anyway, would very likely still have come apart. And, you know, if Callaghan had tried to insist, as he did on the basis of taking power in 76, on a 5% pay norm, 
and did it after an election, I think the result may well have been quite similar. Now, obviously, the wintry discontent at that point would not then have led to a Conservative government. But the fundamental question of, you know, the degree to which the trade unions had the power to push up, you know, as certainly as it was seen at the time, to push up inflation through their wage demands without due increases in productivity, that issue was still there. And if you look at what was going on, you know, around Callaghan at the time, you have people like Bernard Donoghue, you have young cabinet ministers like Roy Hattersley, David Owen, Shirley Williams, Bill Rogers, who, of course, eventually, you know, some of whom become the SDP, you know, who are really beginning to rethink some of this stuff. So, you know, I asked Roy Hattersley about this and about the fears of the 30s. And he said, well, you know, that didn't really scare us. We didn't remember it. You know, he's about 40, 44 at this point. You know, those fears are just dying because the demography is moving on. You know, you have to be about 50 to remember Jarrow at that point, if not older. And so you have that changing. You have the kind of the, the breakdown in the relationship, which is already broken down before between Labour and the trade unions. And you have, you know, the Thatcherite project developing a, a kind of credibility. So what I think probably would have happened is that there would have been a Callaghan government where people like the people I've mentioned and others of a similar stripe, actually Vince Cable was in as a Labour advisor at the time, you know, would have led a government which was was trying to achieve a sort of a sort of left Thatcherism in a way, or left monetarism. You know, there was nothing inherently right wing about monetarism. Peter Jay, an absolute stalwart Labour person, was pioneering monetarism. And there would have been an attempt based on the sorts of things you saw in the 1976 conference speech that he makes to both constrain the money supply, but also try to maintain at least decent relationship with the trade unions, ameliorate unemployment, not particularly restrict the rights of the unions. Eventually, probably that wouldn't have worked. And you would have seen something of the order of Thatcherism, perhaps in a more dilute form, she probably wouldn't have survived later on. But I I think it's hard to see the basic conflict being absolved by an accident of electoral luck. Does that make sense? It does, absolutely. And it it brings us on to what I want to focus on from here on, which is what's happening now and how that fits in with your thesis. Because in your book, of course, and and this is almost conventional kind of account now, it's only a small part of your analysis because it almost you take it for granted, that seismic events contribute to these tipping points. Seismic events contribute to the shift of the nightmare. So the Second World War, as you said, enables this shift of the establishment being most worried, as it were, about kind of sound money and a shift to being most worried about the capacity to mobilize, but also then social division, the the desire to avoid the conditions that gave rise to the politics of the 30s. And then we have the oil shock, and we have the contribution that the oil shock makes to economic decline and to this sense that we're slipping towards being this kind of grey corporatist state. And and this creates the shift, the, the tolerance of mass unemployment as the price that is worth paying for freedom and dynamism to come back to our country. Now, we have had two of these things, arguably three. We have had the global financial crisis, We've had COVID. We've had Brexit. Some might say we've got climate change there on the horizon. There seem to be so many things which could precipitate the death of what is lazily described as neoliberalism and the move to some new paradigm. But yet, yet not. I mean, yet we we speak, you and I, with the new government, which seems, if anything, to want to return to the verities of Thatcherism. So in a sense, this is the dog that didn't bark. 
why have these seismic shifts not led to the kind of change that you describe so vividly in the 1930s and 1970s? Well, as you can imagine, I think about this quite a lot. <laughs> I would I mean, there's another crisis, of course, that you, you haven't mentioned, which is the cost of living crisis plus the Ukraine war. Yeah. So, you know, you could argue four and a half. And I suppose the conclusion that I have reached is that, well, several things. Firstly, these things work in a really messy way. Because what we're talking about is a democracy changing its mind. And what that means is lots and lots of people under whatever influences of, you know, change of their age and the change of, you know, striking events, as you describe, and so on and so on, and what other people are, are, are now counting as politically possible. But, but this is a messy process. Millions and millions of people had to change their minds about, you know, the acceptability of mass unemployment, the, the viability of a free market in a complex interconnected economy between, let's say, 1968 and 1980. Now, if you're in a dictatorship, it's easy because you kill your opponents, uh, at least, you know, on the face of it, it seems easy. But, you know, that means that you have lots and lots of false starts, as we've talked about in the 1970s. And to some extent, you know, you get that in the 1930s as well. So what I would say is that the crises we've seen have not finally ended, quote unquote, neoliberalism, but I think major shifts have happened. So that's the first thing. If you look at, you know, the economics profession, you look at talk to somebody like Diane Coyle, who will say that there has been an absolutely sort of sea change in what is seen as, and partly with reference to climate change, you know, there's been a sea change in, in what is seen as being viable and what is seen as being, you know, now rather questionable, a shift away basically from a sort of Hayekian model among particularly younger economists, which will start to work its way through. You can see this in the rhetoric of the, you know, the head of the CBI castigating the legacy of Thatcherism in the north of England, or you know, the editor of the Economist, I think, describing herself as a, a Keynesian. The IMF calling for greater attention to inequality. And if you look at the response that the government has made to those three big crises, you know, in the financial crisis, there is a massive injection of government money, but it primarily is there to rescue the banks. It's not going into you know individual people's pockets. People absorb the shock through taking pay cuts or moving to more precarious but worse-paid jobs. When COVID hits, you get something more radical. And I think it's no accident that that happens after Brexit and this great expression of partly economic discontent four years earlier. And so you have the furlough scheme, you know, devised by a basically Thatcherite chancellor with TUC. You know, that's very hard to see happening in 2008. And then you look at the speed with which our new prime minister has gone from saying that, you know, helping people with their bills would be a handout to, you know, a huge amount of money being spent. So I think you can see a shift happening. However, you're absolutely right that it hasn't absolutely tipped over. Now, we shall see what happens at the next election. Perhaps that will be the moment when that happens, perhaps not. But I think what I would say is that the Second World War is a pretty hard event to compete with in terms of its huge impact psychically, and even the threat of it in the late 30s. And I think it's probably quite telling that, you know, it took Dunkirk to break the orthodoxy of the 30s. You know, give or take the oil shock, it only took the winter of discontent politically in Britain to break the dominance of the trade unions, a rather smaller event, I think we'd agree, than Dunkirk. And I think there's a fairly obvious, you know, imbalance in, in the power of the unions and the power of finance that that speaks to. And I think what we're seeing challenged over the last 14 years is much more the power of finance than, you know, obviously than the power of the trade unions. And that therefore it does take more shocks to get there. I'm not suggesting that it will only take another Second World War to get us over the line. I think we may be quite far along the track, but we shall see what happens. That's really interesting because 
Where's treating Labour's health spokesman said something I thought was kind of interesting when Liz Truss won the Conservative Party leadership. Now, he, you know, obviously he did it for political devilment, but I thought it was unusually for a, a bit of kind of political rhetoric, actually, you know, intellectually quite engaging. It, he said, the Conservatives have decided they don't want to win the next election. You know, they had chosen somebody who looks as though they are less likely to win an election. This looks like they're less popular, looks like they're less interested in kind of playing to the centre ground and British politics. Do you think that in some sense that is because the Conservative Party, the Conservative establishment realises that we do need to shift to a new post-neoliberal, sorry to use that terrible jargon, post-neoliberal paradigm fully? We've, you've, you've described how we've moved away from it partially, pragmatically, but in a sense, we need that full paradigm shift away from that. And then in a sense, they can't accomplish it. You know, that Boris Johnson, in some ways, in talking so much about levelling up, he looked like he was attempting to reimagine a kind of post-neoliberal conservatism, but in the end, due to his own personal frailties and, and also maybe the ways in which he was constrained by his own party, he wasn't able to do it. Liz Truss has kind of about, or appears to have abandoned that project. So do you think in a way there is actually something to what West Treating is saying, that there is almost in the Conservative Party now a sense of, well, let's have the last two and a half years with the truth at your right, you know, who will give it to us straight. And if we lose, well, maybe it's time for somebody else to do what has to be done because it's not really our cup of tea. Well, I certainly think if you look at the two previous examples of, of this sort of period, you know, that, that there are rather striking echoes. I mean, I remember talking to people just before the result was announced at a party on the night of the 2019 election saying, I think this is going to be like 1974. And then you get this 80 seat majority and then you think, oh my God, actually, it's, this is 1979. This is, this is not like the last sort of, you know, failed sort of, you know, attempt to, to get halfway there. Actually, this is the real deal. But I think now it does look, actually, for all the HTC majority, somewhat more like, you know, the world of Callaghan after 1974. And indeed, actually, in some ways, it's reminiscent of, you know, Foote and, and Ben. I mean, you know, there was a, a striking headline during the course of the leadership campaign where it says, Sunak says, you know, I will govern like Thatcher if I win, says Sunak. And I, the thought went through my head, you know, I will govern like Attlee if I win, says Foote. You know, that there is this sort of sense of, of you know, we, we've tried breaking away and we can't do it because it just violates our sense of what is politically, you know, right. It violates our other nightmares. It takes us into the nightmares that we must not risk returning to. And that's why I think you're seeing so much rhetoric at the moment about, you know, we must never go back to the 1970s, just as you saw at the end of the, the 70s. We were still, we was, you know, and, and put saying that right through the 1983 general election campaign, you know, the mass unemployment of the 1930s, you know, and eventually those songs lose their, their salience. So no, I think, I think you, if you look at the Callaghan government specifically, I think there is quite a striking analogy with levelling up. You know, the Callaghan government is trying very specific things. You know, you have the, the speech that Callaghan makes that I mentioned, about breaking from Keynesianism at the 1976 party conference. You also have two policies developed by Bernard Donoghue, one about the sale of council houses to their to their tenants based on his own parents, which he knew full well would antagonise, you know, left-wing middle-class Labour people. And you have the Ruskin speech that Callaghan makes at Ruskin College, Oxford, just after becoming leader in 1976, which is about focusing education on skills. Now, all of those three things are, from one perspective, proto-Thatcherites. And I just have this very clear image in my head of, of him desperately trying to take the party in a new direction, helped, as I say, by 
by those people like Roy Hattersley and Donahue and so on. But with his one of his feet sort of encased in concrete, and he just can't do it. You could actually see something of it with with Chamberlain, although I think Chamberlain to some extent was the block of concrete himself. You know, he's he's a very you know ambiguous figure. But but I think you can see something very similar if you look at the radicalism of Boris Johnson's speeches when he took power. You know, in the context particularly of this incredibly antagonistic and febrile confrontationalism of 2019. You know, talking about the forgotten people and how London doesn't have all the answers and Brexit was a vote against concentrations of power in this country, not just against Brussels. You know, this is the rhetoric that you know Nick Timothy and Morris Glassman and so on had, had been developing through that decade, and and you do get the sense, particularly over the course of the leadership election, that they may be right. You know, They may have made the right decision. Uh, it's not for me to judge. But that for good or ill, the Conservative Party has you know, decided that it does not want to pursue that tack. Now, in terms of electoral politics, what then happens in the red wall seats, which didn't get a big say in this election? I'm not sure how many Conservative members there are in the red wall seats and how many voted. It would be quite telling to find out. But, you know, the electorate that just delivered our current Prime Minister is very much not the electorate that they need to keep at the next election. Mm. I feel I could talk for hours, but I'm going to finish with with a slightly kind of cheeky question. You, you, the, your book is is not a manifesto. You 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 quite careful about uh, being as objective as you can in describing what you describe. And that's one of the strengths of the book, in my view. But I I did feel in the final part of the book that there is a kind of sense from you of what you think needs to comprise a new consensus, albeit, as I said earlier on, you want to say consensus is never across the whole of the political establishment. It's just sufficient to shift things. And that is a kind of post-liberalism. You talk quite a lot about Morris Glassman and Blue Labour and Claire Ainsley and, and a emphasis on kind of solidarity and identity. And you talk about Philip Blonde and Red Tory. And I feel as though, I felt as I read that, that your view is that there, if there is a kind of new politics, and arguably there is an argument that says we moved away from the grand narrative. You can just forget the idea of a consensus, a grand narrative. Politics has become so atomized, so focused on 24-hour news, the impact of social media, that, 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 that anyway, you just that's just not how you build coalitions now. But in as much as it is still possible to imagine consensus, I, I sense that you think that consensus is in a kind of post-liberalism which balances a post-liberalism, economic post-liberalism, which is comfortable to the left, but also a kind of social post-liberalism that is more challenging to the left. And there's almost a frustration from you that that set of ideas has in the end not been able to take centre stage. I wouldn't put my own sort of name on it to quite that degree. I mean, I'm trying to understand what's what's happening. I mean, I think I, I absolutely understand the, the kind of concerns that the phrase post-liberal, which can sound like anti-liberal, you know, raises with with people. And, you know, I, I'm not trying to kind of decide who should win. I'm trying to decide who I think is most likely to win out of this process. And and I think the reason that I, I write so much about that is that those people seem to me to be the people who who were prepared to sort of break taboos, you know, for good and ill, and draw attention to the basically nightmares of people whose concerns and fears weren't central for a very long time and that there is this sort of quiet nightmare of you know the the town center left to die and the sort of sense that we once were a great town you know deborah mattinson in our works for keir starmer has written about you know people in accrington saying well you know we made the bricks that built the empire state building 
you know, there's this sort of sense of lost pride and lost dignity. I mean, very interesting to reflect on how that intersects with the funeral of the Queen in some ways. You know, that there is, you know, whatever you think of it, whatever your politics, just objectively trying to understand the patterns that, you know, it's not surprising that, you know, one group are, you know, essentially kind of underpinned and and secured in place by the dominant nightmare for quite a long time so you know working class people do relatively well after the war because there's this fear of mass unemployment then once you have thatcherism the fear of strikes and and inflation and so on is is of benefit to a different group of people in society and you know if you carry on like that for long enough eventually enough people will be fed up enough that there will be you know a shift and i think that's really what i'm trying to point to i just think those people were were onto it early and were beginning to think it through quite early and that there there are many you know many things that as i say people have raised raised serious issues with about about how those arguments have been conducted but uh, i do think that that you know there is something that the red wall vote showed us in 2019 that that is the political battleground i mean just cephalogically you know those are the seats that whichever party wants to be in, in power will probably need to win and that that is what i mean at the end of the book by saying this is democracy doing its job that finally you know without you know very much violence without you know revolution this slow messy backwards and forwards three steps forward two and a half steps back process has taken us to the point where you know political journalists in london and economists and so on and policymakers and ministers and people who may never have even been to those places spend quite a lot of their time thinking about them now, the Conservative leadership election focuses in a different direction, but, you know, the next election will return us to that. You know, if those seats are not attended to by this government, then they're less likely to, to, to be supported. And that's really the process I'm talking about. Not that I think it will be great or that I think it will be terrible, but just that's what I think is happening. Yeah, it's a, it's a great idea for us to finish with, the idea of the the queue, the morning queue, as a kind of expression of post-liberalism, which I think it is, because in the one, on the one hand, it's a, it's an expression of social solidarity, identity, and belonging, and on the other hand, the outrage at the idea that some celebrities queue jumped, and the delight at David Beckham queuing up for twelve hours speaks to a kind of, a kind of rejection of, of a different kind of economic liberalism, if you like. So. Yeah, that's a maybe. Maybe future historians will talk about the queue as a, a moment of catalyst, and wouldn't that be, in some ways, a wonderful thing? Phil, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you so much. It's been really interesting. Thank you. As listeners know, I like to end each episode of this podcast with a, a final thought. Today, it's very simple. At a time when perhaps the biggest political and cultural conundrum is why we seem so unable to confront the evidence of our accelerating national decline, and even more unable to grasp what that decline, if unhalted, will mean for our lives and the lives of our children, at such a time, Phil Tinline's The Death of Consensus is simply required reading. Order it. Read it. Share it. Goodbye. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org/approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.